Hello there. Welcome to Challenger Approaching, a podcast about the history behind every major franchise featured in the Super Smash Bros. series. I'm your host, freelance games journalist and author, Ben Bertoli. Here on Challenger Approaching, I cover key entries, interesting game details, and fun trivia about a single series. A guest expert or superfan will also be dropping by to give us the lowdown on their favorite game or a moment in the series' history that they find intriguing. And of course, just a quick warning that I'm not so great at pronouncing Japanese words and names, but I'll do my best to get them right. For our fifth episode, we'll be digging deep into a beautiful, miniature world of strategic retrievals and intense brigade battles. They're cute, they're colorful, and their adorable cries of death will haunt your dreams. It's time for the history of Pikmin. In late August of 2000, Mario and Legend of Zelda creator Shigeru Miyamoto took the stage at Nintendo's then-yearly Space World Gaming Showcase in Chiba, Japan. This year, Nintendo was unveiling both their next handheld, the Game Boy Advance, and their next home console, the GameCube. On this particular day, Miyamoto was on hand to show the audience a GameCube tech demo known as Super Mario 128. The demo began with an 8-bit Mario running into view. As he froze mid-jump and the camera zoomed, it was made apparent that this Mario was made up not of pixels, but colorful 3D blocks. With the classic of a Mario coin, the block on the tip of Mario's nose leapt up to reveal a tiny Mario beneath. This Mario began dismantling his retro doppelganger block by block. Underneath each block was another Mario to help with this daunting task. Soon the screen was filled with Marios, running, jumping, rolling, throwing blocks, 128 Italian plumbers, each with a mind of their own. At this point, the circular platform that the Marios were all standing on began to warp and twist pushing the pudgy plumber to climb and fall on different types of terrain. And then the platform became a pizza, because, uh, everyone loves pizza. The giant pizza shook off all the remaining Marios and fell neatly into a render of the Nintendo GameCube. And that was it. Tech demo over. Miyamoto bowed as the audience laughed and clapped. Though the name implied this demo might be a sneak peek of the long-awaited sequel to Super Mario 64, what with 128 being double 64, it was actually one of the main inspirations behind a new Nintendo IP that would come to be known as Pikmin. The demo had shown how the GameCube could render dozens of characters all moving independently on screen at the same time, something the Pikmin series would use to its advantage. But GameCube processing power wasn't the only contributing factor. Like many Miyamoto games before, Pikmin was inspired by one of the game developer's personal hobbies. One day, as Miyamoto tended to his home garden, he witnessed an army of ants working together to move a large piece of debris. He imagined what it would be like for tiny humans to complete such a task. And thus, Pikmin was born! Okay, maybe it wasn't that immediate. In fact, Pikmin had been in development for quite a while before one of the core gameplay elements was finally decided on. At this time, the Pikmin characters were being used solely as weapons that players could command to take down larger enemies. It was the idea that the Pikmin could carry defeated enemies back to their home base that truly sparked the game's unique feel. Project leader Shigafumi Hino mentioned this in a 2009 interview with GameSpot, saying, 
I can still clearly recall the first time I saw multiple Pikmin working together to carry a big opponent. Until then, we had been struggling to find the direction that this game should have, but when these carry actions were completed, we were able to determine the future of Pikmin. Even further into development, Miyamoto and his team decided that the titular Pikmin wouldn't be controlled by some unseen and all-powerful force. The tiny hybrid beings needed a fearless leader. The team eventually settled on a pint-sized space traveler and named him Orima. The name Orima is an anagram of Mario, another of Miyamoto's creations. This fun little easter egg wouldn't quite reach players outside of Japan, as Orima would be changed to Olimar for Pikmin's western releases. In Pikmin, players take control of Olimar after a meteor causes his spaceship to crash land on a mysterious planet. Spoiler alert, that planet is Earth. Standing at a measly 1.9 centimeters tall, Olimar is dwarfed by most of the plants and animals in his forested surroundings. He's also dismayed to find that most of his ship's important pieces have broken off in the crash. Since oxygen is toxic to his people, Olimar only has 30 days to find all his ship parts before his life support runs out, and the clock is already ticking. As Olimar pokes around this new planet's surface, he finds a strange but helpful animal-plant hybrid growing in the native soil. Due to their resemblance to the pick-pick carrots of his homeworld, Hokitate, he names these little helpers Pikmin. The little buggers can be used in swarms to fight off unwanted intruders, carry heavy ship parts, and tear down barriers. The original Pikmin game introduced three types of Pikmin that players could command, red, yellow, and blue. Olimar soon finds that red Pikmin are fireproof and the most resilient in fights. Yellow can be tossed higher and also carry bomb rocks, and blue can breathe underwater and throw drowning Pikmin ashore. Aside from ship parts, Pikmin can also transport defeated opponents and large colorful pellets to their individual onion-shaped ships. This produces more Pikmin for Olimar to use. Why would you need more Pikmin, you might ask? Well, they die pretty easily. Pikmin could be squished, stomped, eaten, and beaten in each of the game's five sprawling forest environments. The sound of a Pikmin dying is truly heartbreaking, but sometimes it can't be helped. With an average day coming in at roughly 13 minutes, players had to strategize exactly what they wanted to accomplish before the sunset and Olimar's ship, the SS Dolphin, launched back into the stratosphere for the night. Players needed to find at least 25 of Olimar's ship parts within their 30-day time limit if they wanted to unlock the game's average ending. Get all 30 parts and you'll witness the happy ending, but go below 25 and, well, Olimar crashes back to the Earth and becomes a Pikmin himself. Pikmin launched in late 2001, early in the GameCube's lifespan. And while it wasn't exactly a major hit, it found a strong following from players who wanted a different kind of adventure, especially from Nintendo. Selling over a million copies, the game did well enough to convince Nintendo and Miyamoto that a sequel was worth pursuing. Here to talk about the next entry in the Pikmin series, and the game that he feels is the best, 
is Kotaku Editor-in-Chief Stephen Totillo. Hey Ben, how's it going? Hey, it's going great. So Stephen, you're a pretty big Pikmin fan, is that right? Yeah, I when I first saw that on GameCube, I was really excited. You know, it was coming after a drought of nin- original Nintendo games. Um, they had been doing just so many sequels, and so I found it so refreshing. And uh, I just find the series fun, charming, like just terrific overall. And which which game do you feel is the best in the Pikmin bunch? Clearly, hey Pikmin, the side scroller, <laughs> the way that Pikmin is meant to be played, right? Oh God, no. No, I don't think that's it. No, Pik- Pikmin 2, uh, GameCube. I didn't play the new play control all mm-hmm. that much, if at all. I can't remember. That was the Wii re-release. But no, Pikmin 2 on GameCube was was terrific. And um, even though I usually have a bias towards almost like the newest sequel for anything, because mm-hmm. I find the games are so effectively iterative, I feel like, yeah, with apologies to Pikmin 3, Pikmin 2 is probably still my favorite. So... In Pikmin 2, um, I think the big hook was like, now you can play with another person. They introduced uh, like the little Luigi to Olimar's Mario, which was uh, Louis, Louis, I believe. The yes. Little... Yeah. So, and... What a subtle connection that was. <laughs> did you did you play Pikmin 2 with somebody else? Or did you just kind of uh, switch back and forth on your own? Uh, no, I just played it solo. And you could do the thing, if I remember correctly, where you could swap the protagonists. And I got to tell you, I have not taken the GameCube out in a while. So I'm coasting on memory and just the afterglow of Pikmin 2, let me tell you. But um, <laughs> even though at the time, or maybe this was even before the time I was working at MTV running a blog called Multiplayer, I was a dedicated single-player gamer. Why did I ever have a thing called Multiplayer? I don't know, because I'm like not a multiplayer person. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I played Mario as a kid, not Mario Kart. I played Zelda, not Smash Brothers. Apologies to all the Smash fans listening to this podcast. <laughs> and when I played Pikmin, any version of Pikmin that had multiplayer options, I still focused on the single-player, and Pikmin 2 is just an amazing single-player game. It had other innovations and changes and refinements, from the original beyond um, offering the co-op play, and it's those changes that really helped it exceed Pikmin 1 in my personal Pikmin ranking. So what do you remember from Pikmin 2 that kind of made it stand out from the other ones? Like, what pushed it to that level of, of being better? Well, they it, it didn't have... like One of the things that was very controversial about the first Pikmin is that um, the day-night cycle was cool, but there was also just a, a finitude to... The, you, you you only had a certain amount of days and then it was like game over and this mm-hmm. game was more about this this game was more about you had day and night you know you still have to get off the planet you know take off at night otherwise your little pikmin will all get eaten but you could continue to play and play and play and play so they they removed some of the stress there mm-hmm. and then they funneled that stress into these underground you remember you play pikmin too right yeah the underground levels I'm not even talking about the challenge mm-hmm. stuff because there's the challenge stuff too, but the un- underground levels where you just find caves and you can go into them and you could only take in the Pikmin that you had. So you've already established to, to your listeners the fundamentals of Pikmin, um, the fact that you have this army that you can kind of regrow. Mm-hmm. So imagine not having that ability, right? That's what it is when you go into the, the caves in Pikmin. It was sort of like you have who you have, um, you, know, you sort of use your wits about you. And I remember getting deeper and deeper into these caves floor by floor by floor and getting to one of those bosses that would be like one of those long like cocooned or caterpillar like guys who could roll and he would sort of extend his body and he'd just sort of steamroll over like half your crew of Pikmin. Because they didn't have anywhere to go, right? It was a little enclosed space. Yes, they had nowhere to go. You could not grow more. And 
Uh, but it was a good challenge, and it was, I thought, an effective way of refunneling the challenge and the stress that used to exist in, in from the first game of knowing you only had so many day, game days to go through this, and instead saying, okay, we're not doing that so much, but we're doing this. Here are these things where you know you only have you only have so many lives, uh, Pikmin lives that you can go with. Otherwise, start over um, in in terms of going through the cave. So I really like that, and they, and they had a basic really strong idea initially one of the strengths of pikmin and something i was alluding to before uh in that it was the first original game from nintendo uh, in a while Mm -hmm. was that it the pikmin format the pikmin game was a demonstration of the timeless strength of nintendo game design Pikmin 1 came out at a time, you know, is it 2000 or 2001 or something like that? Mm-hmm. Or maybe, maybe a year later, I can't recall. Um, but it came out at a time when you weren't seeing a lot of games with a lot of bright red, yellow, and blue. When it was a time for much grittier looking video games. And there was a lot of questioning about whether Nintendo's aesthetic really was still the thing that people were interested in. It just, you know, um, Nintendo kind of always historically was in some sort of you know branding feud with Sega or PlayStation for seeming to be too juvenile. And then you had this very colorful game in Pikmin show up, a new creation from Nintendo, them still not really going dark and gritty, like sure, Eternal Darkness was coming mm-hmm. from Silicon Knights and Nintendo, but you had this very colorful game. And yet, red, blue, and yellow made sense as a gameplay system. Red Pikmin, invulnerable to fire. Blue Pikmin, invulnerable to water. Uh, or incapable of drowning, rather. Yellow mm-hmm. Pikmin. What were the yellow Pikmin? Ele- electricity. They could handle electricity. Yeah. Electricity. And they could jump better, right? Was that the thing? Right, right. You could throw them really far. And you then were looking to harvest them. And what would you see in this otherwise, quote unquote, photorealistic environment? But red pellets, yellow pellets, blue pellets, these bright, colorful things with big numbers on them. You know, this isn't the kind of design that anybody else was aspiring to do at the time. Like, it's just like, it's almost like, 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 preschool or play school or whatever you know school you want to describe it um <laughs> design if you think of it from a like is it macho enough and cool enough but if you think about it from a clarity of visual design and gameplay intent and ability for the player to parse the game design wonderful oh a pellet with a 10 let me and it's red <laughs> 10 pikmin throw 10 pikmin at it they'll carry it back like ants carrying an elephant they'll bring it over to the you know the, the, the little onion bud spaceship and they'll turn that into 10 or more Pikmin sprouting from that, right? And, and knowing that, mech, you know, that feedback mechanism of how all that stuff would work was great. Pikmin 1 laid those, that foundation. And then Pikmin 2 saying, okay, let's add in white and let's mm-hmm. add in purple. And we you know white impervious to poison, purple. The, the big boys, right? Heavy hitters. Able to crush. Um, and, you know, you had... An expansion, you know, of the rainbow of Pikmin, and I just saw that as a really exciting way for Nintendo to stick with their design sensibility and expand it out in their way, and that that led to more complex puzzles and more complex strategies. Um, in addition to the fact that with having both Olimar and Louie as two explorers, you could have them separate the crew of Pikmin, and then you could be multitasking. Obviously, also designed to be amenable to co-op players. But even as a solo player, you could then be bringing your two, you know, hordes of Pikmin to two different places. So, I mean, that's 
to me, the strength of Pikmin overall as a franchise is an exhibition of this wonderful Nintendo approach to game design that at times was not the most in vogue thing. And then also why Pikmin 2 was so exciting to me because it was the right kind of content addition or uh, making gameplay more complex approach. Um, was there is there a certain Pikmin uh, that you uh, hold above the others, the, a certain color <laughs> that you prefer that you felt the worst about when they got steamrolled or smashed? Well, the purples were so valuable and so rare and are so much more difficult to get um, mm-hmm. that I think I was I was probably more upset when uh, <laughs> when they were gone. Um, but you know, I, I loved all of them, and like, I like that's like also there's like the the black humor of of the Pikmin series, and that like Nintendo's not afraid um, to make characters really cute, and then to make those cute characters deaths really upsetting. <laughs> so, just, and their little souls fly up into the yeah, air, and that little uh, the screams, and they, yeah, that's not even oh, a scream; gosh. it's like this sad <laughs> wail or something like that. It's so yeah. Um, the game also holds a, a soft spot for me in terms of where it was at in, you know, I'm a lifelong Nintendo console player. I did start with an Odyssey 2 back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but starting with an NES until I was able to afford more than one console, the only consoles I had were Nintendo consoles. And so, you know, when you were an N64 owner or a GameCube owner, you were living in a drought. And, you know, Pikmin 2, like a lot of first-party Nintendo games during the times of those two platforms was like, you know, the oasis for you um, between, you know, and, and so mm-hmm. you're, get, you're talking about a game that coming out in, in 2004, in summer of 2004, is just like, you know, GameCube is kind of on its last legs at that time. We're about to go into a real fallow period for Nintendo console gaming. And so it was, a, it was you know, that's not really a reason to lionize a game because its publisher was not effective at producing that many other games or attracting sufficient third-party support, but... Um, it still manages, you know, to to stick with me in that regard, just because, hey, that was a, it was a really well-made first-party Nintendo game on a platform where I didn't have a whole lot else to play, and I don't think I had yet. Oh, maybe by then I had started to to you know go a little PlayStation Two at the same time, but you know, that it was it, it was nice in that regard. Yeah, it was a good exclusive. Yeah. So Pikmin 2 was kind of the first game, I think. Uh, there might have been some of this in Pikmin 1, but they, like, started just dropping in these brand names of, like, actual, you know, you could find, like, a Duracell battery. You could find, yes. like, a Dr. Pepper cap. Was there any one of those things that, like, stuck out to you? There was even, like, old-school Nintendo, like, you know, merch and, you know, games and, and bits. Was there anything that you remember, like, popping out as being like, whoa, like, that's so cool. What a great callback. No, because I don't remember that not being in Pikmin 1. You're saying you don't recall. Like, I mean, was there were obviously objects in Pikmin. There mm. were objects in Pikmin 1, but maybe there weren't like dull bananas and things yeah. like that, right? Because that's more of what they were doing with, with Pikmin 2. I'm now remembering this cardboard stand-up that they sent me mm-hmm. back when Nintendo would send all this ridiculous stuff. Um, and I had that propped up in my, my, my area for a while because it was just kind of like this this cardboard Pikmin and this like lobster-like enemy and stuff like that. <laughs> but I don't, I don't remember that any branding on that. The thing that I liked in terms of the marginalia of Pikmin 2 wasn't so much the um, the brand name things, although that was fun. It really sold the idea that these are characters in a miniature version of what might be our own world. But it was the Piclopedia. You remember the Piclopedia? Right, yeah. I think they stuck with that through the through the third one, didn't they? I think there was a Piclopedia in the third one. I mean, there's some really good Piclopedia-like stuff even in, even in the newest game, in, in the Hey Pikmin, the otherwise maligned 3DS game, because mm-hmm. that has... Nintendo, if I remember correctly, NES 
cartridges that you can find, and they say funny right. things about the label art on the cartridges. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah, because I was thinking that there was like um, a, a Game Boy game in Pikmin Two, but that's not. Um, I think in Pikmin 2, I remember distinctly finding a Nintendo game, but it didn't look like anything I'd ever seen. And when Pikmin 2 came out, I was uh, 16, I think. And it was a Famicom disc system game. It was like the Muramasa or Murasame's Castle or something like that. And I had no idea what that was. But it was so cool. You know, it's like, here's literally digging up this history and I can go, you know, look it up on my own now. Yeah, I, yeah that part of it isn't standing out to me as much, but I, I, I hear you on that. And it is fun when sometimes... Nintendo throws in some of the stuff that was only in Japan and kind of intersects that history into the games that you're playing in the U.S. For me, the Piclopedia is one of my... It also exemplifies one of my favorite qualities of Nintendo, which is that they do really great lore writing. And for a company that's not really known for being aspiring to be storytellers in terms of mm-hmm. you know voice acting or complicated RPG plots and things like that, they actually have a really great heritage of really strong kind of like sm- fine print to their games if you know what mm-hmm. i mean and i'm sure you've encountered this in a lot of games where you know you'll get to the whatever the menu option is for item descriptions in a given first party nintendo game and often they'll be very funny or they'll be written with really great, great flair or in a specific character's voice so the the piclopedia in pikmin 2 was the first time i think i can really recall being noticing this in a Nintendo mm-hmm. game. And I remember talking to some writers at the Treehouse, or localizer people as well, at Nintendo's Treehouse, which is where they do a lot of this stuff, often working with things that are written originally by the Japanese developers. And they were really proud of, of the writing there, as they should be. You get a, basically a, a, you know, a, an encyclopedia of Pikmin enemies in there. They weren't just shown in still images, but they were presented as if they were in kind of like an aquarium or you know, sort of whatever that can kind of glass, you know, cage, whatever you would put a pigment enemy in. You could throw carrots at them, these like picnic mm-hmm. carrots or whatever, and they would react. <laughs> and so they might yeah. scurry over and try to nibble on some. Uh, they also would just sort of like animate on their own a little bit in there. So you just kind of watch them and observe their behaviors. And then there was just really funny writing written about them, like, uh, you know, of just things that Olimar was recognizing about these creatures. I think Louie would talk about, like, food things related to them, like cooking them or something like that. <laughs> um, but just, like, the, the, the fact that Nintendo would bother to take these weirdo-looking enemies in this game and then create this whole, you know, uh, listing of them, and then unlike other studios who maybe don't have the resources to do this or the creative will, um, but instead of just listing them by name just, or just by telling, telling you how many times you killed them, or in this case, I think it'd tell you how many Pikmin they've destroyed, that they would instead give you these like little character insights into them. You know, like I'm a, I'm a big fan of the Assassin's Creed series, and I really liked it in the early Assassin's Creeds when they, you would be finding all this stuff in Renaissance Italy or whatever, they would also be filling out this encyclopedia that you could go through in the game, and it would have voiceover narration by some of the in-game characters. Ubisoft would write for these characters their own spin on these historical locations. And so you would actually develop a sense of who these narrators were as their, and, and their own perspective on things. And you get some of that happening back in the Piclopedia and Pikmin 2. Um, so it's you know, not just a good showcase for Nintendo game design, but actually a good showcase for some of the kind of writing that Nintendo very subtly and kind of secretly on the side excels at. So that's part of what makes it also a really strong package to me. All right. Well, is there anything else you want to say about the Pikmin series? Uh, I hope it comes back. I 
know that there's been very confusing rumors about Pikmin 4 and Shigeru Miyamoto having said that it's, you know, in development and all that and people kind of not understanding what that necessarily meant. I can't tell from what was done with Pikmin 3 if Nintendo might be running out of ideas with the series because I don't feel like Pikmin 3 really added enough mm-hmm. to really make it inarguable that there should be more and more. I think the series could stand for some settings changes. You know, what are the Pikmin like if they're, you know, in a city instead of in the forest oh. or something like that? I don't know. But, you know, that's a good I, idea. I, I, you know, for whatever reason, I always had this image of Pikmin driving a car. Like a whole bunch of like <laughs> bunch of purple Pikmin on the accelerator, you know, some yellow Pikmin on the steering wheel. So, so you want Pikmin Kart, the new I'm, new racer? I'm thinking no. I'm thinking a car the size that you or I would drive. Oh, that car would have to have little tiny Pikmin in it. Gotcha. So it would actually almost be more like a Forza than mm-hmm. a Mario Kart, but somehow the Pikmin driving these cars. <laughs> so I don't know how I don't know how you even do that. But that, that's a, some reason I had that that vision a long time ago. But that's why I'm a games journalist and not a game developer. It's probably ridiculous and would be unfun. But yeah, I would love to see the series come back. I don't know necessarily where they would take it. I hope they would find some fresh way to to channel it. They clearly care about the series because they keep bringing the characters back in other ways, like in the 3DS spinoff or in Smash. Um, and they're just so charming and, 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 and wonderful. So, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping we're not at the end of Pikmin. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for coming on and talking today. Yeah, my pleasure, Ben. Before everyone's favorite pint-sized plant beast got a third game of their own, Olimar was announced as a fighter in the third entry of the Super Smash Bros. series. After various delays, Super Smash Bros. Brawl for the Wii launched in early 2008. Olimar's normally miniature stature had to be beefed up a bit so he could hold his own in the ring, and even then, he was pretty small compared to most characters. Unlike most Smash Bros. fighters, Olimar's Pikmin projectiles had unique properties depending on their color. Some flew further, hit harder, and even caused fire damage. More importantly, Olimar's Pikmin could be destroyed, so players had to remember to replenish their tiny army at all times. Before Olimar would be invited back for the next round of Nintendo roughhousing, Pikmin would finally get its third entry. Pikmin 3 was confirmed to be in the works for the Wii by creator Shigeru Miyamoto at a developer's roundtable at E3 2008. Nothing aside from the game's existence was noted, and nothing more would be said about the game until three years later. Nintendo did make the decision to re-release the original two Pikmin titles for the Wii with enhanced controls and slightly tweaked gameplay. New Play Control Pikmin and Pikmin 2 launched a similar acclaim, with critics noting the natural feel of directing Pikmin with the Wii's motion-controlled Wiimotes. Other small additions, such as the ability to throw Pikmin further and go back to replace specific days, made the updated games the best Pikmin experience yet. At another annual E3 roundtable meeting, this time in 2011, Miyamoto confirmed that Pikmin 3 was still in the works, and that the project had been moved to the Wii's successor, the Wii U. The next year, at E3 2012, Miyamoto took the stage at Nintendo's last official E3 stage show with a plush Pikmin to officially introduce the game. I try to stay away from personal stories outside of the interview segment, 
but I would like to note that I was in the audience when Pikmin 3 was announced at E3 2012, and I was so excited for the game that as soon as the doors opened to the convention center, I sprinted as fast as I could to the Nintendo booth and got in line for Pikmin 3. And as far as I know, I was the first non-Nintendo employee to play that game. After being pushed back a bit, Pikmin 3 launched in the summer of 2013. Visually, Pikmin 3 was incredibly stunning. It looks just as good, if not better, than many of the AAA titles being developed for Nintendo's much, much more powerful home console rivals. The game's lush wildlife was to be the landing point, not for Olimar, but for three new heroes. Alf, Brittany, and Charlie land on a planet that they have dubbed PNF-404 to find food for their struggling homeworld of Kopai. Pikmin 3 finally gave players a good view of the Earth from space, and it can be seen that the continents of Earth have shifted into a theoretical futuristic landmass known as Pangea Ultima. While on the surface, the Kopai crew stumbles across the various species of Pikmin from the first two games, as well as journal entries from Olimar. Two new Pikmin, Rock and Flying type, are introduced as well. It's up to players to round up enough fruit so Kopai won't go hungry, and to solve the mystery of what happened to the heroic Captain Olimar. Pikmin 3's sales were decent, but the game was still attached to Nintendo's lowest-selling home console of all time. Following the game's launch in the fall of 2014, Nintendo released a collection of Pikmin animated shorts that showed the curious plant creatures getting into trouble and helping Olimar tear down a construction site. These shorts were actually really well done, and it's a shame that most folks have no idea they exist. I'd highly recommend giving them a watch if you can find them on YouTube. In an exclusive interview with Eurogamer in 2015, Miyamoto announced that Pikmin 4 was officially in development, though little to nothing was revealed beyond that one fact. 2017 saw the release of Hey Pikmin for the 3DS, the first handheld entry in the series. Unlike its predecessors, Hey Pikmin was designed as a side-scrolling puzzle platformer, with players lobbing Pikmin around the screen via touch controls. The game didn't provide much of a challenge, and many of the series' trademark staples, such as using Pikmin to carry objects back to the ship, were nowhere to be found. Hey Pikmin was a disappointing and, altogether, forgettable misstep. When will the next main series Pikmin title actually be seen? Nobody outside of Nintendo really knows, but many believe it'll be sometime soon. With Pikmin 4 having been in development for over four years, and the Switch selling well, there's a good chance we'll be tossing the colorful plant helpers within the next year or so. Hey, 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 it's time for bonus stage. The part of the show where I tell you all the juicy trivia that didn't make it into the regular segments. And I have more than normal, because darn it, Pikmin is great. Tidbit number one. In an interview with Nintendo Power, Shigeru Miyamoto mentioned that Pikmin actually started out as a project called Adam and Eve. It was planned to be a game where players took on the role of God and watched over tiny creatures interacting with them as they saw fit. Tidbit number two. Olimar's ship, the SS Dolphin, is named after the GameCube's development codename, which was simply, The Dolphin. Tidbit number three. 
When the first Pikmin game was released in Japan, it was accompanied by a tie-in song that was sung by a virtual band named Strawberry Flower. Strawberry Flower was a band made up of Pikmin. The song, AI no Uta, or Song of Love, was so popular that it boosted Pikmin's sales in Japan substantially, even managing to sell more copies than the game itself. Strawberry Flower is still together, virtually that is, and have released four songs in total, one for each Pikmin game. Tidbit number four. Speaking of Pikmin songs, if you get the right colors and amount of Pikmin together in Pikmin 2 and 3, they'll begin to sing the game's theme song, or the area theme for that game. Gather 20 of each Pikmin in Pikmin 2, and they'll even start humming AI Nowota. Tidbit number five. In Mario Golf Toadstool Tour for the Nintendo GameCube, Pikmin can be seen in flower patches lining certain holes. Hit your ball into those patches, and the Pikmin will go flying. Challenger Approaching is written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Ben Bertoli, here in Indianapolis, Indiana. Our opening track was created by chiptune composer Branflakes. His music can be found on YouTube under the handle Branflakes325. All the music samples used in this episode are the property of Nintendo. Special thanks to Steven Totillo for coming on the show as our expert. You can find Steven's written work on Kotaku.com and find him on Twitter at Steven Totillo. If you have comments or suggestions for the podcast, or feel I left out something terribly important, feel free to tweet at SuperBentendo or shoot me an email at HeyBertoli at gmail.com. Challenger Approaching will return in two weeks with a new gaming history lesson, so be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or anywhere that fine podcasts can be found. See you soon! <laughs>